Okay, we've had some delays on releasing new episodes of Rockford Reading Daily. This isn't the first time we've had this this issue arise with not being able to put out episodes on a daily basis and with having to prolong putting out episodes and because of the nature of what the May 30th Alliance is struggling against, it probably won't be the last time that something comes up and we are forced to halt putting out episodes on a daily basis. But I'm going to continue to do my best, as I've done times before, to have multiple episodes pre-recorded to be able to be released. And hopefully we can try to avoid this happening again for a while. I know that the last few episodes that have been released have been released without much direction there's been uh, a couple of different books being read at the same time and i do apologize for that confusion and for that mess but we want to start getting back on track and so we're going to continue reading the end of policing we're going to read through the end of policing for the next couple of weeks and then after the end of policing gets finished you will hear us continue reading freedom is a constant struggle and then from there, I'm not sure what the next book will be, but the plan is to keep keep these coming on a regular daily basis. So the last episode where we read the end of policing was only a seven minute episode. I apologize for that. But we're going to pick up where we left off at in that episode. All right. So this is the end of policing by Alex Vitale. We are on page 11 and we are on chapter one, the limits of police reform. The federal government also began to fund training and equipment for SWAT teams in the 1970s as part of the last round of major national policing reforms, which were intended to improve police community relations and reducing police brutality through enhanced training. These reforms instead poured millions into training programs that resulted in the rise of SWAT teams, drug enforcement and militarized crowd control tactics. Diversity. There is no question that the racial difference between the mostly white police and the mostly African-American police in Ferguson, Missouri, contributed to the intensity of protest over the killing of Mike Brown. Reformers often call for recruiting more officers of color in the hopes that they will treat communities with greater dignity, respect and fairness. Unfortunately, there is little evidence to back up this hope. Even the most diverse forces have major problems with racial profiling and bias and individual black and Latino officers appear to perform very much like their white counterparts. Nationally, the racial makeup of the police hews closely to national population figures. The U.S. population is 72% white, 75% of police nationally are white. Blacks make up 13% of the population and 12% of police. Asians and Latinos are somewhat less well represented relative to their numbers, but not dramatically so. In the largest departments, only 56% of officers are white. The disparities seem greater in communities of color because of the deep segregation there. In these cases, there are invariably large numbers of white officers patrolling primarily non-white areas. This contrast stands out more than its converse because whites are rarely concerned about being policed by non-white officers and because white communities tend to have fewer negative interactions with the police. There is now a large body of evidence measuring whether the race of individual officers affects their use of force. Most studies show no effect. More distressingly, a few indicate that black officers are more likely to use force or make arrests, especially of black civilians. One new study suggests that small increases in diversity produce worse outcomes, 
while large increases begin to show some improvements. But only a handful of departments met this criterion. In the end, the authors conclude, quote, there's no evidence to suggest that increasing the proportion of officers that are black is going to offer a direct solution, end quote. Use of force is highly concentrated in a small group of officers who tend to be male, young, and working in high crime areas. This high concentration of use of force may be exasperated by weak accountability mechanisms and a culture of machismo that rewards aggressive policing formally and informally. These same cultural and institutional forces militate against differential behavior by non-white officers. At the department level, more diverse police forces fare no better in measures of community satisfaction, especially among non-white residents. These departments are also often just as likely to have systematic problems with excessive use of force as seen in federal interventions in Detroit, Miami, and Cleveland in recent years. Both New York and Philadelphia have highly diverse forces, though not as diverse as their populations. Yet both have come under intense scrutiny for excessive use of force and discriminatory practices such as, quote, stop and frisk, end quote. This is in large part because departmental priorities are set by local political leaders who have driven the adoption of a wide variety of intensive, invasive, and aggressive crime control policies that by their nature disproportionately target communities of color. These include broken windows policing, with its emphasis on public disorder, and the war on drugs, which is waged almost exclusively in non-white neighborhoods. Having more black and brown police officers may sound like an appealing reform, but as long as larger systems of policing are left in place, there is no evidence that would give cause to expect a significant reduction in brutality or over-policing. And then that brings us to a changing in the theme within this chapter. And this is a saying that I heard from uh, H. Rap Brown. Yeah, he goes by a different name now. I'm sorry that I'm not remembering his uh, what he's changed his name to. But uh, he's formerly known as H. Rap Brown, a very influential civil rights activist in the 60s and the 70s. And I mean, well, just really he was his I think his most prominence was in the 60s and the 70s. But he was a civil rights activist and a, a black freedom fighter for the has been one for the entirety of his life. But one of the sayings that I often repeat that he I first heard from him was that even if you. If right now all the white police officers in any given city were to retire and were to quit and they were to be replaced with black police officers or police officers of color, the police department would still continuously would still continue to disproportionately. Have a negative impact on people of color. Because their policies would still be geared towards uh, prosecuting people of color because their procedures would still be geared towards prosecuting people of color in a city like Rockford, Illinois, even if all the uh, white police officers uh, became black police officers overnight, the black police district, excuse me, the police districts would still be stationed in majority of black neighborhoods. The police policy would still be telling and pulling over people in these neighborhoods it would still be a when black people would be arrested they would still deal with the corrupt justice system that would treat them differently than their white counterparts and uh 
Uh, we know here in Rockford that black people are pulled over three times as often as white people. And that is not something that is simply done because the police officer is white. It's done because the suspect that these officers are looking for are black. They're uh, the person who fits the description is black. The people who they believe are the ones perpetuating violent crimes and perpetuating uh, perpetuating criminal activity are going to be black. And so we're st we would still see even if these officers were to not were to become were to be black and were to be people of color, we would still see black people and people of color being uh, disenfranchised by the institution of policing. And I think that's something that we have to be able to articulate because far too often people think that solving the issues of policing is by simply just getting more black people to be police officers or younger black people who have uh, been in uh, these communities that dealt with the negative impacts of police off policing to become police officers. And that's just not the case. As, as we read here, studies have shown that just making giving more black people badges does not change the way that people with badges operate. And so we have to put a higher, a higher priority on changing the system of policing, not changing the people who are police officers. Procedural justice. Procedural justice deals with how the law is enforced as opposed to substantive justice, which involves the actual outcomes of the functioning of the system. President Obama's task force on 21st century policing report focuses on procedural reforms such as training and encourages officers to work harder to explain why they are stopping, questioning or arresting people. Departments are advised to create consistent use of force policies and mechanisms for civilian oversight and transparency. The report implies that more training, diversity and communication will lead to enhanced police community relations, more effective crime control and greater police legitimacy. Similar goals were set in the late 1960s. The Katzenbach Report of 1967 argued that the roots of crime lie in poverty and racial exclusion, but also argued that a central part of the solution was the development of a more robust and procedurally fair criminal justice system that would uphold the rights of all people to be free of crime. In keeping with this, it called for a major expansion of federal spending on criminal justice. Just as local housing and social services programs needed federal support, so too did prisons, courts, and police. Quote, every part of the system is undernourished. There is too little manpower and what there is is not well enough trained or well enough paid, end quote. The commission called for improved training, racial diversity and hiring, programmatic innovations and research. The Kerner Commission on Civil Disorders reached similar conclusion calling for, quote, training, planning, adequate intelligence systems and knowledge of the ghetto community, end quote. Similarly, Johnson's initial draft of the 1968 Safe Streets Bill called for resources to recruit and train police, modernize equipment, better coordinate between criminal justice agencies, and begin innovative prevention and rehabilitation efforts. It had the support of the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, and other liberal reform groups. After Congress finished with it, the bill primarily granted funds in large blocks to states to use as they saw fit. Johnson signed the bill anyway, claiming that the core goals of professionalizing the police would be achieved. Over the next decade, the result was a massive expansion in police hardware, SWAT teams, and drug enforcement teams, 
and almost no money toward prevention and rehabilitation. By conceptualizing the problem of policing as one of inadequate training and professionalization, reformers failed to directly address how the very nature of policing and the legal system served to maintain and exasperate racial inequality. By calling for colorblind, quote, law and order, end quote, they strengthen a system that puts people of color at a structural disadvantage and contributes to their deep social and legal estrangement. At root, they fail to appreciate that the basic nature of the law and the police, since its earliest origins, is to be a tool for managing inequality and maintaining the status quo. Police reforms that fail to directly address this reality are doomed to reproduce it. The Justice Department makes the same mistakes in its report on the Ferguson Police Department. It relies heavily on improving training and expanding community policing. It also calls for police to acknowledge their historical role in racial oppression, as was recently done by FBI Director James Comey and, to a lesser extent, Commissioner William Braddon in New York. Otherwise, the document largely lays out procedural reforms designed to make the policing process more democratic through internal consultation with officers and their unions and external consultations with the public. Departments are urged to think of how the community will, pursue, will perceive their actions and to pursue non-punitive interactions with people to build trust. These reforms may improve the efficiency of police bureaucracies and improve relations with those active in police community dialogues between communities and the police, but will do little to address the racially disparate outcomes of policing. That is because even racially neutral enforcement of traffic laws will invariably punish poor residents who are least able to maintain their vehicles and pay fines. Well-trained police following proper procedure are still going to be arresting people for mostly low-level offenses, and the burden will continue to fall primarily on communities of color because that is how the system is designed to operate, not because of the biases or misunderstandings of officers. And then that brings us to another changing of the theme within this chapter. And and again, I think one of the things that's the most important about the book, The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, is he does an excellent job of articulating the institutional problems that exist in, in policing. He goes straight to the roots of the problems that exist in policing. And I think that far too often, these are some of the things that are not communicated the right way. Often there is this idea that you just need to train police officers better or that there's this idea that there's just a few bad apples or it's just a few police officers who are doing the wrong thing. And the overwhelming majority of police officers want to do the right thing. And he does a great job in this intro in this first chapter of explaining how this is not about individual prejudices or individual biases. It's about institutional prejudice. It's about institutional biases and institutional prejudices and those are far greater to combat than individual ones and it's not that the that police officer john doe patrolling the west side of rockford is racist and he's pulling over a bunch of black people trying to find drugs it's that police officer john doe has policies procedures quotas and training that is rooted in racism and even if he is the most unracist police officer or the most unracist individual when he begins to enact these policies and enact these procedures and follow through with these with trying to reach these quotas and uh 
he naturally engages in racism because all of these things are built on racism because police are. And then I think one of the things that's important to, to, I don't want to try to say too much here. I think he does a good job of, of articulating these things. I'm just trying to uh, put them, some of these things in my own words, but one of the, the pieces at the very last part of this paragraph that is very important, I think to be able to articulate to people is that, even if you remove the racial element to how policing is done, the there is an inherent discrimination against people, working class people and poor people who do not have the same means to fight against policing and to fight against uh, unjust policies and unjust procedures. And so even if a police officer is just following traffic laws and enforcing traffic laws is going to have a harder punishment on a person who is poor, who can't afford to get a new sticker, who can't afford to pay for their headlight that's out or who can't afford to uh, fix something that's on their car. Then it's going to affect somebody who has the money to afford those things. The same thing when they arrest people, uh, when, once you are arrested, it's not simply about whether you are guilty or innocent. It is about proving your guilt or innocence. And if you have the finances to be able to hire a lawyer, as opposed to being somebody who is poor and has to rely on a public defender, you are in a better chance to be able to, uh, to, to fight, to prove that, uh, innocence or fight to prove, to maintain that concept of being not guilty. And so I think those are all things that we have to be able to articulate. when talking about the problems of policing. We have to be able to articulate the racial injustices that are inherent in the issues of policing. We have to be able to articulate the negatives of capitalism that is inherent in the institution of policing as well. OK, community policing. Everyone likes the idea of a neighborhood police officer who knows and respects the community. Unfortunately, this is a mythic understanding of the history and nature of urban policing, as we will see in chapter two. What distinguishes the police from other city agencies is that they can legally use force. While we need police to follow the law and be restrained in their use of force, we cannot expect them to be significantly more friendly than they are, given their current role in society. When their job is to criminalize all disorderly behavior and fund local government through massive ticketing writing campaigns, their interactions with the public in high crime areas will be at best gruff and distant and at worst hostile and abusive. The public will resist them and view their efforts as intrusive and illegitimate. The police will react to this resistance with defensiveness and increased assertiveness. Community policing is not possible under these conditions. Another part of the problem lies in the nature of community. Stephen Herbert shows that community meetings tend to be populated by long-term residents, those who own rather than rent their homes, business owners, and landlords. The views of renters, youth, homeless people, immigrants, and the most socially marginalized are rarely represented. As a result, they tend to focus on, quote, quality of life, end quote, concerns involving low-level disorderly behavior, rather than serious crime. Across the country, community police programs have been based on the idea that the quote community end quote should bring concerns of all kinds about neighborhood conditions to the police 
who will work with them on developing solutions. The tools that the police have for solving these problems, however, are generally limited to punitive enforcement actions such as arrest and ticketing. Community policing programs regularly call for increasing reliance on police athletic leagues, positive non-enforcement activities with youth, and more focus on getting to know community members. There is little research, however, to suggest that these endeavors reduce crime or help to overcome over-policing. Low-level drug dealing and use generates a tremendous number of calls for police service. Criminalizing these activities has done nothing to reduce the availability and negativity of, and negative effects drugs, negative effects of drugs on individuals or communities. Excuse me. It has produced substantial negative consequences for those arrested, however, and has been a major drain on local and state resources. The research shows that community policing does not empower communities in meaningful ways. It expands police power, but does nothing to reduce the burden of over-policing on people of color and the poor. It is time to invest in communities instead. Participatory budgeting and enhanced local political accountability will do more to improve the well-being of communities than enhancing the power and scope of policing. And then that brings us to the end of that of the community policing theme within this chapter. And something that stands out to me from there is, uh, or a thought that I have after reading that is, the areas that have the highest amount of drug drugs being sold or calls about drugs being sold, the areas that have the highest amounts of drug usage or calls about uses of drugs, when people are arrested in those areas or when people are charged with selling drugs in those areas, when they go to go to jail and have a bond set, that money that is set for that bond does not go back into that community. It does not go back into trying to rebuild the community or, or be restorative to the community where these drugs were being sold and used at. That money just goes back into the city government, it goes back to the county government, it goes back into law enforcement and the, insti uh, the institution of policing, and it, it never trickles back down to the places where these things are taking place at. And that is how you know that there is no true effort to try to absolve these uh, these socioeconomic issues. I think I'm using socioeconomic right in that term. There's no true uh, desire to absolve the drug usage and drug selling in that air in those areas. I think one of the other things that stands out about uh, that passage in community policing is one of the earlier books we read in the Rafa reading series was a book called Citizens, Cops and Power by Steve Herbert. And he points out some of these same things when we were uh, when we were reading that book. And I've said this multiple times before that what we want to do with this route for reading is like building a curriculum of all of these pieces of literature that complement each other and that can help to illustrate just how deeply embedded some of these issues are and how it's not none of these things will be simple fixes. And I think when you read each each author and each book sort of is like a piece to a puzzle. And I think that far too often we try to solve the puzzle before we have put together enough pieces to get a good look at the picture. And what we want to do with these route for readings is to take 30 minutes a day to continue to add pieces to the puzzle to get a look at that bigger picture. OK, we're going to read one more passage before we end this episode. Enhanced accountability. Holding police accountable is another focus of reformers. Activists have called for police to be prosecuted criminally in most cases, 
though this is rarely successful, leading some to call for new forms of police prosecution. Many reformers frustrated with local inaction have looked to the federal government to intervene, though with little past success to point to. Finally, police body cameras have emerged as a possible technological fix, but raise serious privacy concerns. Independent prosecutors. There are major legal, institutional, and social impediments to prosecuting police. While hard numbers are difficult to come by, a successful prosecution of a police officer for killing someone in the line of duty, where no corruption is alleged, is extremely rare. A recent report found only 54 officers charged for fatal on-duty shootings in the last 10 years. Of those, only 11 were convicted. Their average sentence is only four years, with some receiving only a few weeks. The few convictions that have occurred have resulted primarily from clear video evidence or the testimony of fellow officers. From the moment an investigation into a police shooting begins, there are structural barriers to indictment and prosecution. When there is reason to believe that the shooting might not be justified, prosecutors tend to take a greater role. However, they must rely on the cooperation of the police to gather necessary evidence, including witness statements. Police officers at the scene are sometimes the only witnesses to the event. The close working relationship between police and prosecutors, normally an asset in homicide investigations, becomes a fundamental conflict of interest in all but the most straightforward cases. As a result, prosecutors are often reluctant to pursue such cases aggressively. Furthermore, because DAs are usually elected, they are often reluctant to be seen as inhibiting the police since the public sees district attorneys as defenders of law and order. Even in periods of heightened concern about police misconduct, most citizens retain a strong bias in favor of police. We can see the efforts of this in the case of Darren Wilson, the officer who shot Michael Brown in Ferguson. Prosecutors spent months collecting and presenting evidence. While this made them appear thorough, it also created a public, quote, cooling off, end quote, period, allowing the possibility that demands for prosecution would die down. Also, the St. Louis County DA decided to use a radically different approach in this case. Usually, prosecutors make a short presentation of the evidence to the grand jury in which they call for specific charges to be considered. Given the low threshold of probable cause and the one-sided nature of the proceedings, successful indictments are the norm. In this case, the DA decided to provide the grand jury with a wide variety of conflicting evidence and little framework to evaluate it and allow them to decide without any prompting whether an indictment was justified and for what offense. This allowed the DA to absolve himself from any responsibility for the outcome and serve to confuse and undermine the confidence of the grand jury, gambling that it would be likely to err on the side of caution and hold back on an indictment. Normally, this body is given clear guidance and only overrules prosecutors in extreme cases. One alternative being pursued in several states is the creation of an independent police prosecutor's office that is more removed from local politics. The hope is that such independent prosecutions would be viewed as more legitimate regardless of the outcome. In addition, such so-called, quote, blue desks, end quote, could become repositories of expertise on police prosecutions. While still tied to politics at the state level, these bureaus, because of their singular focus, 
might be better able to insulate themselves from accusations of overly aggressive prosecutions, as well as charges of not supporting the police, since this is their primary purpose. However, even when a prosecutor is motivated, there are huge legal hurdles. State laws authorizing police use of force, backed up by Supreme Court decisions, give police significant latitude in using deadly force. In the 1989 case, Graham versus Connor, the Supreme Court ruled that officers may use force to make a lawful arrest or if they reasonably believe the person represents a serious physical threat to the officer or others. This means that police can initiate the use of force over any resistance to arrest. In Missouri and many other places, any perceived effort to take an officer's gun justifies the use of deadly force. The court also said that the totality of circumstances must be judged with an understanding of the split second nature of police decision making. <clears throat> Therefore, considerations like the size and previous actions of the alleged perpetrator, as well as the training and guidance of the officer, are factors a jury may consider. In some cases, state laws don't even reflect the new federal standards. Recent police prosecutions in Missouri and South Carolina were clouded by state laws that allow police to shoot fleeing suspects. Another challenge that won't be fixed by independent prosecutors is the mindset of juries. Popular culture and political discourse are suffused with commentaries about the central importance of police in maintaining the basic structural integrity of society, as well as the dangerous, excuse me, as well as the dangerous nature of their work, as misguided as both may be. The legal standard for judging police intensifies this tendency to identify with them. Finally, despite the, quote, post-racial society, end quote, rhetoric, racism and bias remain omnipresent in American society, nowhere more than in the realm of criminal justice. There is abundant evidence that jury bias exasperates racial disparities and criminal justice outcomes, including false convictions, application of the death penalty and drug convictions. Recent research shows that the closer whites live to blacks, the more positive their views of the police are, which did not augur well for an indictment in a place like St. Louis County. White jurors are much more likely to side with police, regardless of the race of the officer and the person killed. And then that brings us to the another changing of the theme within this first chapter. And that's going to also bring us to the end of this episode here. What stands out to me in the passages that we just read is the emphasis that Alex Vitale puts on trying to highlight the relationship between the state's attorneys, the prosecutors and the police department. And it goes to explain why so few officers are brought up on charges for the brutalizations that they have done to members of the community. And I think that one of the things that's important for us to, uh, to remember is how many different layers that there are to the criminal justice system and how many different, how many different pieces, moving pieces are at play. And the police are just one part of those moving pieces. The police are supported by the prosecutors. The police are supported by the judges. The police are supported by uh, politicians who put uh, who pass legislation, which is inherently biased towards black people and people of color. And 
when you see all of these different levels, when you see all of these different things that are at play, it just goes to uh, our, it goes to illustrate how many different things we have to combat. And it goes to illustrate how much different information we have to decipher through. So that way we aren't falling for for these same type of smoke and mirror effects. And so they pointing out here how often how in a specific case of Michael Brown and Darren Wilson, that if the prosecutor, if the state's attorney wanted to have charges brought up against Darren Wilson, they could have. But that is not what they wanted. They have a close relationship with the police. They don't want to jeopardize that relationship with the police. But because it was so much pressure being put on them from the outside, they wanted to seem as if they were attempting to do something. And so they wanted to get the ball out of their court as a prosecuting team or as the state's attorney and put it in the hands of the jury. And so there's a saying that says if a prosecutor wants, they could get an indictment on a ham sandwich. And that is something that is important to remember for the times when there is not an indictment from a grand jury there. Ninety nine percent of the time it is because the state's attorney did not want an indictment from the grand jury. They wanted to save face. They wanted to have a, a, a PR like a public relations stunt that they were doing to try to straddle both sides of the fence. That way they can tell the community, hey, we try. We tried to press charges or we tried to hold this police officer accountable and the grand jury decided to not go forward with it. And then they can also say to the police or to and to members of the community who may be supportive of the police and opposing pressing charges on the police officers. Hey, no charges are going to be pressed on this police officer. We can continue with business as usual. And we have to be able to see past those type of things. And I think that's there's something that is that we've even though we're talking about playing out here in Ferguson, we see those things play out throughout throughout the country uh, on, a, on an annual basis. And one of the things I want to make sure to remind people as we read through all these different chapters of the end of policing is that on average, a thousand people a year are killed by the are shot and killed by police department within the United States of America. That's three people, about three people on average a day. Uh, that are shot and killed by the police in this country. That is not including people who are tased to death, people who have chokeholds on them put to death, people who die in high-speed pursuits, people who die in custody of other ways, people who die inside the jail. These are all these, there are all these different ways that these things happen. And we have to keep that in mind as we're reading these things, just how often these things are manifesting and that the people who are feeling the brunt, the, the, the brunt of this issue are, Working class people, our poor people and our people of color, the people who are the most marginalized in our community. So I want to uh, thank everybody for taking time to listen to this episode. I want to apologize for being late on some of these other episode releases, but we're going to try to get back onto a routine and share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. If you have not listened to previous episodes of Rafa Reading Daily, please go back and listen to those episodes. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to further their struggle in the journey to end police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. We outside.